Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 15th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Pennsylvania, Nebraska, Oregon are holding primaries and Wisconsin's filling some special election seats right today. Sample ballots, absentee ballots, and voter pamphlets are delivered to our homes for the California primary June 5th. Today, we're going to hear from Kati Petri Norris, businesswoman and Democratic candidate for the California 74th Assembly District, which along this with this station, the district includes South Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Laguna Woods, Costa Mesa, and most of Irvine. In the second half of the show, in another installment in the California 45th Congressional Race, we'll get acquainted with Brian Ford, senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management and Democratic candidate. Here's the promise. When the stump speech starts to kick in, the guest has microphone issues, malfunctions. We'll be right back after station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest, first guest on the show is Kati Petri Norris, Democratic candidate, challenging the incumbent Matthew Harbor for the California 74th Assembly District seat. Also running are Catherine Daigle, Karina Onofre, who appeared on the show as candidates, and Ryan Ta, who I'm trying to uh, schedule as well. Kati Petri Norris hails from and attended public schools in San Diego County, completed her Bachelor of Arts in Economics and English at Yale University. She has 20 years of experience in finance and marketing in Fortune 500 corporations, small companies, and startups. After living and working all over the planet, Cotty has been living in Laguna Beach with her husband and two sons. She serves on the board of the Laguna Beach Democratic Club and the Laguna Beach City and Housing Human Services Committee. She's found the founding member of the 48th District Action Council and an Assembly District Delegate for the California Democratic Party. She comes to us today from Sacramento, presumably rubbing shoulders with office holders. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Cadi Petrinoris. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me on the show and giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners this morning. Well, like you said, yes, I'm uh, I'm calling in from Sacramento, where I've been meeting with some of the leadership and just discussing our priorities to move California forward. As um, as I know, you know, this election is so important for Orange County, for California, and for the country. Uh, the primary is only three weeks away. And uh, we want to make sure that everyone gets out there and votes on June 5th. Well, this is a fine opportunity for all of us to get a bit acquainted. Why are you running in the Assembly District race, and why now? So I am running for the California State Assembly to represent the 74th because I believe that Orange County deserves better representation. We deserve an Assembly member who reflects our values, who will stand up for the issues that we care about, good jobs, 
good schools, protecting the planet. And we also need an assembly member who will deliver for this district and bring more of our Orange County tax dollars back to Orange County. As you said in your intro, I'm a businesswoman, I'm a community leader, I'm a working mom. I know how to solve problems and get things done. And in the assembly, I will fight to protect our coastlines, to fully fund our public schools, uh, and to create good jobs and build an economy that works for everyone in the 74th district. Well, I want to dive into policy because that's that's where it's we never get enough of that. And that's what all the voters really need to be dialing in with. We've got shiny objects galore coming at us. So mm-hmm. that's where we dial it really hard, as far hard down as I can here on Ask a Leader. I was at the California GOP convention in San Diego a couple of weekends ago, and the, the politicals all were focusing their attention on one side of the health care ledger, the expense of California going to some form of single parrier. And it's national, while we're speaking, it's National Women's Health Week. How do you, Cotty Petri Norris, do you visualize the balance sheet of California, both sides of the ledger on health care? So, um, Claudia, as I'm sure you know, there are 40 industrialized nations in the world, and 39 of them have some sort of universal health care. Only one doesn't, and that's the United States of America. We are the wealthiest country, the most successful country that has ever, you know, in history. And I think it's shameful that we do not provide universal health care for our citizens. So I do think that it's a moral issue, but it's also an economic issue, because while uh, we don't provide universal care, our costs are something like twice what the costs are in those countries that do have universal health care. So I think when you look at it, I think we know that it's the right thing to do. We know that it's economically the smart thing to do. And I do think that there is um, political will to do it, particularly here in California. That's not to say that um, it's the sort of thing you can just do overnight. It is an enormous task and an enormous challenge, but I believe that we need to start down that journey and do so in a way that is fiscally responsible um, and takes care of everyone in, in California and everyone in our community. Well, I was just going to give you a chance to look at both sides of the ledger. That 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 costs are are one side. There's benefits on the other. I didn't know if you wanted to address that. Well, I think, like I said, that you know, when when people talk about universal health care, and I think particularly, I'm sure what if you know if you're at the the GOP convention, I think the way that they talk about it is, it's socialized medicine, and the costs are going to explode, and we can't afford it, and we're going to drive California into bankruptcy. That's just not the facts. When you look at the facts, you look at the cost of health care in other countries. And like I said, you know, our neighbors in Canada, they are providing good, high-quality universal health care with better outcomes for their citizens at a cost that's something like half what our costs are in California. So I think the first step to developing a uh, universal system is that we've got to rationalize the value chain, right? So we've got to make sure that um, big insurance companies and big pharma, that their share of the value chain is not uh, so ridiculous that it's going to bankrupt the system. So I think that's how, how we have to address the cost side of things. And I think that 
you know, like I said, we know that it's economically viable because it's happening in 39 of the other 40 countries in the industrialized world. So let's move on to the the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's making its way toward qualifying as a statewide ballot proposition. What is your position on that particular fix with tech? So, um, you know, I think it is, it's important for us to um, protect consumer privacy. I think that uh, what we've seen in the last couple of months, what's kind of been unveiled uh, with, you know, the Facebook and the Twitter and the, the fact that millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people had their data compromised um, by uh, unscrupulous sources, in fact. Um, I think we know consumer privacy is, is important and um, something that, that needs to become a priority. And I am glad that it's something that's going to be on the ballot so that the citizens can vote and the citizens can decide. I, I know that the more ballot measures we have, the more <laughs> it sort of uh, it puts more pressure on the citizenry to educate themselves. And I, I always sort of am guarded about how many measures go on there. And it, is it any any disincentive for voting is a, is a concern. So uh, it's if the propositions are it's a I think it's very choice real estate. And so it's a, it's always an opportunity cost of sorts. And we. Um, yeah, that's we'll a, it's that. an interesting point, and I think a really good one. And you know, one thing that that I've certainly seen over the past 18 months, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well, is I think that there's been all across the country, and certainly in Orange County, I think an unprecedented level of engagement from citizens, from some people who you know were not politically motivated or politically involved at all, who are now paying attention. They are researching candidates. They are volunteering on campaigns. They are researching propositions. So I really am hopeful that we are seeing a, um, you know, a real uptick in civic engagement and um, that, that, that that shows up in the way that people show up at the ballot box and the way that people research what is on the ballot. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Cotty Petri Norris, Laguna Beach resident and Democratic candidate for the California 40, 74th Assembly District, which along with this station, the district includes uh, it's most of Irvine, South Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Laguna Woods, and Costa Mesa, or you can go to KUCI.org for your pledge. That is the pledge for now. Let's go back. We've got Cotty Petri Norris, the one of the Democratic candidates for the 74th Assembly District. So we're moving into another policy area. That mm -hmm. is, it's blown up in Orange County, the, the judicial ruling that something's got to give, whether it's in uh, various municipalities or the county sorted out. We've got affordable housing that is diminishing. It's increasingly expensive real estate in Orange County where you would be representing uh, in the state. And then we have the emergency housing mix, as the, the Judge Carter was uh, having cities and the county address. So what is your fix for this problem that's only opening up and with greater intensity? Absolutely. This is, as you said, this is a huge issue all across Orange County and all across California. Um, I just read an article yesterday that uh, estimates 
the homeless population across California has grown by something like 15% just in the past year. And I think when we think about Orange County, a couple of things. First, we need a practical and integrated solution across Orange County. And we need to make sure that every city in the county is coming to the table and willing to do their fair share to address the problem. A um, couple things. We, uh, as you probably know, Orange County spends something like $300 million a year on addressing issues, homeless population and issues related to the homeless population. By some estimates, if we fully housed the homeless population in Orange County, it would actually cost less than what we have right now. It would cost something like $250 million, which seems like a scary number, but it's actually less than what we are spending right now. And we're not getting to a solution. We're just continuing to see a crisis that's getting worse and worse. I think that, um, like a lot of uh, homeless rights advocates, I strongly believe that we need a housing-first model. We need to provide permanent supportive housing with wraparound services so that we can help people get back on their feet and, where possible, rejoin the, the economy and become productive members of society. Uh, like I said, I think that what's really critical is that it has to be an integrated solution across Orange County. I think for too long we've seen um, a handful of cities who have been shouldering more than their fair share of the burden. But I think what's really encouraging right now is that uh, the Association of California Cities, the Orange County, um, Orange County branch, has established a regional task force. And John Stevens, who is on the Costa Mesa City Council, he's the chair of the ACCOC this year, and he's made you know, addressing the homeless issue and addressing it all across Orange County a number one priority, and he is looking to form a private-public partnership both with the cities, you know, working with the Orange County supervisors, and also bringing in some private funding um, and working with groups like United Way so that we actually come up with a long-term solution to this problem rather than you know continuing to stick a Band-Aid on um, on this situation. Well, you're sort of straddled as an assembly, let's say, hypothetically speaking, an assembly district representative, and you have all these municipalities that are trying to send the the unwanted, the unwashed, mm-hmm. to, to live in the other person's municipality. So where does leadership come from to show that this need is going to be met? How do you, how do you reconcile those conflicting uh, uh, agendas amongst municipalities? So I absolutely, like I said at the beginning, believe every city needs to do their share. And I think if you talk to most people in our community, you know, they would agree with that. Uh, one thing that I think is, is most shocking you know, in, in what's happening with the Orange County homeless situation, and again, I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, but some of the listeners may not be, is it turns out that um, the Orange County supervisors has been sitting on, I think it's something like $300 million in federal and state funding that has been earmarked to address mental health issues and address homeless uh, needs. And they haven't done anything with that money. They've just let the crisis get worse and worse and worse. So we actually have some funding and some resources in Orange County that can be applied to the problem. Um, And that needs to happen. And I think for me, that's really highlighted just how important it is 
that we have good elected officials at every single level, right? We need, we need good people representing us at the state level. We also need good people on the Orange County Board of Supervisors. We need good people on city councils, and we need people who are uh, willing to address this and not continuing just to, to ship people you know, off out of their borders and into other cities. Well, I have from a good source that witnessed on the Sacramento State Assembly floor, there was a municipal elected official importuning the assembly district representative to vote a particular way on campaign finance reform, campaign finance disclosure. So there was that leadership exerted. So do you see your role as an assembly district representative to to prevail upon municipal leaders to, to, to go a certain way? I mean, it's, I'm reversing the roles now. Is the leadership from the state assembly district uh, to the municipal leaders? Absolutely. I think one of the things that, and one of the things that I'm excited about when I think about, about taking this office is I think there is an opportunity for us to have a good and better working partnership with our city leaders. And um, I've gotten some terrific support from uh, Costa Mesa City Council members, including Katrina Foley and John Stevens, and from the Laguna Beach City Council as well, including Tony Eisman. And I really do believe that for us to address, you know, whether it's homelessness or you know, some of the other big challenges that California is facing, government cannot just work in silo. We can't have people in Sacramento just doing their own thing and, you know, people in Orange County doing their own thing and then people in these city governments doing their own thing. We need to work together and we need to partner to find solutions that are going to work. So. I absolutely believe that uh, on issues like homelessness and affordable housing that I will be an advocate and will be advocating back to the municipal governments to make sure that we're finding solutions to, to the big challenges we're facing. Well, I would like to move into another public policy arena. Designs on giving public education a makeover are apparent at the L.A. Unified School District School Board, and in the gubernatorial race, there was a huge infusion of money for one of the gubernatorial candidates that puts his campaign way in play beyond uh, where he had been before. Charter schools are that are behind. Um, it, it is the it's the uh, the agenda behind that support in in, in this the huge school district as well as in the gubernatorial race, and so how. How accountable are charter schools? You're a beneficiary as well as my next guest is going to be. Uh, Brian Ford is also a beneficiary of public schools. How does that charter mesh with your view of public education and where the treasury that's shrinking, where the tr those limited resources should be going? So I believe that public education is the cornerstone of America's democracy and the most important investment that we can make. Let me just do a quick um, uh, definition of, of charter schools for listeners that, that may not be as familiar with, with what they are. So charter schools are public schools that get funding from the state and have greater flexibility in hiring, curriculum, management, and some other aspects of their, of their operation. But unlike traditional public schools that are run by school districts with an elected school board, and board-appointed superintendent. Most charter schools are run by organizations with their own self-appointed boards. And 
you know, in general, this gives, this independence gives charter schools more room to experiment and to come up with, you know, instructional and other innovations. And that was one of the reasons that California makers, uh, lawmakers first allowed charter schools to operate in the early 90s. But what we've seen over the years is that their charters are now falling into two categories. So there are dependent charters and independent charters. And dependent charters continue to be regulated by local school boards. I believe they serve a place, and they often serve a specific community who need, whose needs can't be met within the core system, whether that is um, you know, learning ability issues or sometimes language-based issues. So I do uh, support dependent charters and think that they serve a place in our public school ecosystem. But the other type of charter, and um, you know, the charters that are pouring money into the gubernatorial race and other races, those are independent charters. They are outside of the system. There's no oversight. And in many cases, they're actually for-profit enterprises. And I do not support that. I think it's creating a two-tier system using our state tax dollars. And I think the bottom line is that our children and our children's education, it's not for sale. Um, so, like I said, I, would conti- I continue to support dependent charters and think they serve a place, but independent for-profit charters I do not believe should be receiving public funds. But the charter schools that you're talking about that you would see uh, would be veiled some of the funding. I mean, they are, they have a a capacity to cherry pick the students. They are, they are being, they may be selective. How does that mesh with the, the general treasury to vote devoted to public education in the state of California? So yes, just to reiterate, I do not think that uh, schools that are, um, like you said, cherry picking students and um, you know, excluding other students should be receiving public funds. Uh, our public education is under enough strain and enough pressure as it is. We need to make sure that we are spending as much as, as possible to uh, continue to rebuild and um, you know, have good public schools across California. As, as you probably know, California's schools, like in Orange County, we've got some great public schools, but California's public schools are under threat. We are, uh, when you look at our funding, we are something like 42nd in the nation in the amount of money we spend per student. And our achievement is, is also falling behind. We're something like 42nd in the nation in terms of our achievement. And that is not the way that California is going to continue to be an economic and growth powerhouse. So we need to take the money that we have for public education and invest it in public education, not give it to independent for-profit enterprise. Oh, I, there's so much I'd like to open up in that, but we're we're gonna we're down to one of the the last questions in our getting acquainted. Where, Cadi Norris Petrie, can listeners hear you and meet you in any upcoming events in the 74th Assembly District? Well, there are a few opportunities. Um, if people want to find out more about me, you can visit my website, which is votecotti.com. That is V-O-T-E-C-O-T-T-I-E dot com. And follow me on Facebook, which is Kati for State Assembly. That is the best place to find out about our upcoming events. Um, as I said at the start of our conversation, the primary election is three weeks away. So we are 
every single day we are knocking on doors, we are making phone calls, and we're reaching out to members of the community. So if people want to get involved, please uh, check out our Facebook page, and uh, I look forward to seeing more of your listeners on the campaign trail. Well, I want to thank you for patching all the way through and your business today up there in Sacramento. Thank you for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader. Well, thank you, Claudia, and thank you for all that you do um, for this community. It's, it's wonderful, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the show. Well, I want to thank you, and my guest was Cadi Petri-Norris, Laguna Beach resident and Democratic candidate for the California 74th Assembly District, which includes South Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Laguna Beach, Laguna Woods, Costa Mesa, and most of Irvine. We'll be right back after a short station break and bring on the next 45th Congressional District candidate, Brian Ford. Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. That was a track from the, uh, that wasn't, that track was the Magic Drum Orchestra, Mash the Pigeon. I guess that's uh, mashing uh, mashing all the flyers that are washing up at our houses. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Brian Ford, Senior Lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management and Democratic candidate for California's 45th Congressional District, which includes the communities of Irvine, Tustin, North Tustin, Villa Park, Orange, Anaheim Hills, Laguna Hills, Lake Forest, parts of Elisa Viejo, parts, I've learned from my friends that are active down there, parts of Laguna Niguel, Rancho Santa Margarita, and Mission Viejo. Now, the candidate again. Brian Ford was previously the Director of Digital Currency Initiative at the MIT Media Lab served as senior advisor for the mobile and data innovation at the Obama administration's White House of Science and Technology Policy. He's president and co-founder of Yamadas SA, a low-cost internet phone service provider for a quarter of a million customers in Nicaragua after serving in that country as a Peace Corps worker. Prior to that service, Brian Ford was an assistant interactive media strategist at Omnicom Media Group in the UK out of their Los Angeles office. Raised in Tustin, Brian Ford completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology at UCLA and his MBA at the London School of Business. He lives in Lake Forest with his new bride, a Native American rights attorney. He joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Brian Ford. Thanks so much for having me. It's Good to get acquainted with everybody, and I'm trying to get everybody lined up. I'm working real hard on getting the incumbent Mimi Walters on. I hope you do. It'd be great to hear from her. We, it would be very great. I had about seven minutes of her at just right after the inauguration, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I, I have nothing to show for how many times I've called <laughs> district offices, emailed national uh, federal offices, and as well as uh, tried all of those numbers that take the message but don't return them so Sounds I, like I, you're a, I yeah. asked I said if you all are satisfied with me saying that every time I bring on a 45th congressional candidate <laughs> then I'm going to be saying that so first is the question why are you starting with this congressional office why now uh, you know I think what's important to think about just in anyone's life is and this is how I've always viewed my life is what can I be doing uh, that'll have the most positive impact humanly possible 
on the world at this time. And so in the wake of 9-11, when I was graduating from college, I thought the most positive impact I could have on the world, given the current circumstances, given my experience, was to go serve our country in the United States Peace Corps in Nicaragua. Then I thought, well, now that I'm down here, I've been down here for two years, one of the biggest opportunities that I could help address as a technologist was building a company that helped serve the rural poor and save rural Nicaraguans millions of dollars. But I also saw a problem there that I think is germane to why I'm running this time. The technology we were building wasn't legal and it wasn't illegal. It was just new. It's this new technology called voice over IP. And at that moment in time, I knew that government could be on the right side or wrong side of history as it relates to technology and how many people that could help. And when I look at Congress, and I think what we all saw on full display a few weeks ago during the congressional hearings with Mark Zuckerberg was that our Congress is ill-prepared for 21st century challenges, something as basic and simple as social media. Our legislators don't understand it couldn't ask the right questions, couldn't ask the right follow-up questions. Less than 4% of people in Congress have a technical background. This is a community that's one of the most highly educated in the country that has incredible institutions like UC Irvine, where I learned how to code when I was in high school. And we need to take that science and technical knowledge to Congress because if we don't, we're not prepared for the 21st century. So why, why the 45th district then? This is where I was born and raised. This is where we moved home to. Okay. All right. So uh, this this was going to be my it is my first question about there's the second one the first in policy is about the tech sector and how the congressional representatives were pretty flat-footed with when they were faced with the CEO of Facebook uh, Mark Zuckerberg. So um, what is what is Congress's role? I mean, where the the horse isn't out of the barn, the horse is on like a different planet because he was asking everybody to do just to trust him. We we told Cambridge Analytica stop using it, stop you know. And I mean, if the the, the if the horse is already set up in, in a, a lovely condominium on Mars, then we what is government going to do with the back doors? Nobody can monitor, and artificial intelligence is beyond where our minds c can explode to. That's so, the problem. <laughs> Every five minutes, Mark Zuckerberg was saying, you know, AI will, artificial intelligence will solve this. Artificial intelligence will solve this. Yet no one asked him, well, how do we believe that your artificial intelligence will not have systematic biases built into it? And the reason why that's an important question is because we're seeing this time and time again. For example, our parole boards use software to determine who's been, uh, who had the, the likelihood that someone will recommit a crime. And when they do that, what they found is an intrepid reporter uh, uh, from ProPublica found that it systematically discriminated against black men. But we're seeing systematic biases in so many of our tech companies, artificial intelligence. That's why it's really important to, to understand artificial intelligence and DARPA uh, the agency in, in the Defense Department that works on our advanced science and research, they have come up with explainable artificial intelligence. So folks like me and you can help understand the impact of the decisions that are happening to all of our lives because it's just not for people who are paroled. Artificial intelligence being made decisions on all of our lives. And the questions we have to ask are, what are our rights in the 21st century? Because, for example, if I applied for a credit card and I was denied, I would have the right to go look at my credit score 
and then see if there are errors on that credit score. If there are errors, I can go back, fix them. I can apply for that credit card and have the right to go back and get access to credit. What rights do we have in the 21st century as it applies to artificial intelligence? What rights do we have as it relates to our personal data? So the backdoors is one of the issues, and this. I want to be clear. Just be, please be specific when you're talking about backdoors, because back that can relate like to a of lot a of third, well, of the third-party apps or to um, the, the or app-to-app -app communication as well. So yeah. That's so, so so because when people say backdoors, that could also refer to government backdoors, backdoors right, right. that governments are given by tech companies, which is a whole different issue and With incredibly critical as well. Of the communication going to A to the com company, B to the government. No, that, when when it, when a government asks for information from. After the live communication uh, from from a tech company and how they're storing it and where they're storing it and what countries are storing it, et cetera, uh, which are a whole other issue and backdoors to encryption, which is also another issue that that needs to be addressed as well. But what you're referring to specifically is uh, our personal information that is currently stored in platforms like Facebook's that we give permission by accepting the use of an, a third party application to share our private data with that company. Now that information is it implicit is it you know did we actually do it did you read the terms of service probably not but did you accept it probably yes but the question then is okay now a third party has your personal information what are they going to do with it and do you have a right to take it back and that's a critical question that we need to ask because you know facebook asked cambridge analytica or the third party applications to remove that data and it turns out that they didn't and they didn't enforce that now there are new technologies at play that will allow for that to happen for example when i started the research lab at mit we created uh, an electronic medical record that used blockchain based technology that put the patient in control of their information how many of your listeners are so frustrated every time they go to a doctor's office and have to fill out the same darn form with the same darn questions and when they've already filled that out hundreds of times with past doctors turns out the average american has about 14 doctors in their adult lifetime and because of software companies competing with each other in the electronic medical record space, that information is not interconnected. You can't share your information from one company to another, from one doctor to another. And that causes a lot of deaths in, in, in this country as well. So we have to think about the importance of our private data. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that, whole, that whole aspect, though, I mean, I, I wonder at where it where it is ending up when I when I put anything down on you that should. tablet I re actually I received from my my medical my uh, insurance provider I received as a fold out um, a mailer <laughs> and it had my meds that I've been prescribed over the last while and so but the other thing aspect that concerns me about artificial intelligence that's live now it's not mm -hmm. a, a, in the future is the the use of bots with mm -hmm. their capacity now to incorporate disfluencies, mm -hmm. so we have no way of recognizing mm -hmm. it's a bot that we're interacting with, whether mm -hmm. for it's tech for support, tech support, or for uh, any kind of business we're conducting. And what is, wh what does a a congressional member do, or what is it, uh, what is the fix here for obligating the those that are developing those bots to upfront, flat out say. 
this is not a human being. This is, uh, you know, everybody knows Siri's a bot, but we don't know that's a bot that's taking, a, I mean, what if it's the Brian Ford uh, bot uh, taking a survey of whether or not I support your candidacy? The Brian I, bot? The Bri bot. <laughs> well, you know, there's, I always try and look, because technology looking forward is oftentimes hard for us to see um, because we haven't seen it yet. And so what but I like it's to hear, well, so what, what I'd like to, what I like to do is give historical examples because okay. it helps people better understand. Um, and so for example, let's take spam. Now, most people today, spam is not as big of an issue as it used to be before them before, right? Five to six years ago, spam was a big issue today. Like most of the time your spam filters pretty good. And the reason for that was actually a two-track path that was happened both in the private sector and with legislation. And so you had the CAN-SPAM Act. The CAN-SPAM Act set a rules of the road for private sector businesses in this country and how they would use email. At the same time, uh, companies like Hotmail and Google and Yahoo and others started competing on creating better spam filters. And so today, you know, you can't, for example, legislate or create rules around the Nigerian Prince scam that's going to come through through email. So you, there's there's certain things that you just can't legislate that are out of this country. But you can create legislation as it applies to this country and businesses in this country. And technology companies can help build technology to address some of the and are and should to address the foreign entities. Right, but and foreign actors. spam we could see it and delete it, but but I, some of but some of the other transactions we have no idea. And I, I I know it's a heady, huge topic, and I want to move into a, another aspect of that, with, along with some other public policy issues. My guest, if you just joined us, is Brian Ford, senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management, director at the MIT Media Lab, and Democratic candidate for the California. 45th Congressional District, and I'll put it on my podcast summary, all the communities it includes in the interest of time here. We have an opportunity to, on the California ballot, we have the, the it will be qualified, it's, it appears, the California Consumer mm -hmm. Privacy Act. Mm -hmm. So how good a model is this California leading the country with some kinds of protections. How good is this? Yeah, so I believe cities and states are great places uh, to for uh, for uh, laboratories for policy. So if you work on that in the city and state level, and then you see that it actually is, is working well, then you can expand it throughout the country. And I think, you know, what we have to think about uh, as it relates to um, uh, to this, especially as we're protecting consumer data is, one, um, it's giving people the right to be able to uh, remove their their data as it relates to being sold, so you can't uh, you you can you have the right to tell them you can no longer sell or share my data, which I think is important. It also makes sure that you know people describe data as the new oil, and so what we're also seeing is that like with oil, you see oil spills and companies are responsible for it. If data is the new oil and data is being spilled, companies should be liable for that as well. And I think that's incredibly critical because we continue to see every month there's a new data spill at incredible proportions. And some people are saying, well, I want to worry about my identity theft or I want to worry about companies who are sharing my personal information. But we should also worry about our democracy. Because according to a Harvard study in 35 states, because of that Equifax hack that shared most of our data, you can actually, foreign adversaries can now use your personal information, they have enough of it, to be able to yeah. change your voter registration from one place to another. 
And as we saw in the Connor Lamb election in Pennsylvania, is that it only takes a couple of hundred votes to swing an election. So this doesn't have to be Well, it takes only scale. one in a Virginia assembly race. Absolutely. So these, are, these are the issues at hand. And that's why I think it's incredibly important that companies get active and that legislat- uh, legislators get active to address these issues. Well, I just feel like I want to beat tech up once on, on this round with the California Consumer Privacy Act is that that the major companies are crying foul that this is disruptive. <laughs> and I, so that, that then, now we can catch the irony and, uh, and hold, hold that standard up. Uh, and I hope that will be a loop that everybody's going to hear. This isn't about beating up on tech and this isn't about government. This is about We're, everyone about working together spots. for a shared goal yeah, yeah. of making sure that all of our information is, is, is safe. Well, because there's so many unintended consequences Absolutely. with disruption, and so this when the disruption now more. is in their backyard or in their in their front driveway, as it is. So now on to the Tax Overhaul Act, which I've been calling with the other people running in the the, the 45th congressional district. It's the 800 billion ton. It's not the 800 pound gorilla. <clears throat> What's your approach to representing the 45th on this one? What would you do reasonably? You know, 2019, it's interesting because, you know, from the Democratic side, you know, we're all talking about how we want to, you know, turn Orange County blue. But what I've found uh, and I think what we need to find uh, if you if you aspire to represent this district is to make sure that you're representing everyone, not just Democrats or not just Republicans or not just no party preference. Uh, There's no way that, you know, I remember the first time I I walked out of a meeting outside of the, the White House. And I, I looked at my friend. I said, that meeting oh. didn't go as well as I anticipated. And, and they said, why? I said, well, we debated both sides of the issue. He said, well, this isn't the president of the Democrats. This is the president of the United States. And we need a congressman who will represent all of our uh, constituents. And I think what was really interesting to me in the feedback that I heard from our constituents immediately after Mimi supported that uh, bill was that uh, Republicans were outraged about it. And I think this is a, a unifying opportunity that uh, that w- that both Republicans and Democrats can get around uh, in this district, uh, because we also saw Republicans in this county that decided not to vote for that bill because they wanted to vote with their constituents and not with leadership. But I think what Mimi clearly demonstrated to a lot of Republicans on that day is that she's voting to move up in leadership instead of voting to support her constituents. And that's a critical issue that she's going to be held accountable for. So... How do you, I mean, we don't know what the anybody representing who's ever successful in challenging the incumbent. We don't know what the composition is going to be. So that's like there's two playbooks, I mean, the composition of, of U.S. Congress. So it's it's hard to, to know what you can do, what levers you have in your grasp to overhaul a tax act that, that was passed in December. Sorry, so you're asking the question so how, whether we're so going to flip the you've house. You've got to have two playbooks. Yeah, if, if that, yeah, depending on who the leadership or what is the leadership, who's in the majority. Yeah, you know, and this is going to be critical. You know, uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who's endorsed our campaign, was was talking to me, and she said, "Look, Brian, we're at the lowest leverage moment uh, moment that we could be in right yeah, now." Well, she's confirmed a CIA. She, she will. She's in line up to uh, to confirm the CIA appointment. So, so Heidi Heitkamp is okay. So I'm saying that's how low it is. That's right, how little right. leverage she has. Exactly. So so we're in a situation right now where, uh, as a Democrat, and if you oppose this tax bill, then we have a very low leverage moment right now because we don't have 
the House, we don't have the Senate, we don't have the legislative, we don't, sorry, we don't have the executive branch. And so it's incredibly hard to accomplish those goals. When I talk to younger members of Congress who are Democrats, uh, what they talk to me is, um, and, and what they say is that, you know, I just roll up my sleeves every day and figure out what is something that I can work together on with uh, the other side. And quite frankly, uh, you know, I'm not here to be a career politician. Uh, I'm honestly trying to get to Congress to be a problem solver. And I want to look for the opportunities that I can work with Republicans to be able to get work done that helps serve our community. And what I've consistently found from my time working on the White House is that there are uh, the, the, there's no Republican who doesn't want to make our government more efficient, more effective, and more transparent. And technology helps to continually do that. And I think that's a critical opportunity. In fact, the last bill that was signed by, the, by President Obama on Inauguration Day was actually a bill that put into law the Presidential Innovation Fellowship Program, a program that was started in the office that I worked in. And what that did is help bring technologists from across the country into government to help make our government more efficient, more effective, and more transparent. I think that's incredibly critical right now. And we have to find opportunities to collaborate with Republicans without, as me being a progressive, sacrificing my progressive values. And the second thing is, as a Democrat, I have to take the time and have the empathy to explain my progressive values to Republicans in an economic terms, because my parents were Republicans and I've spent 38 years at the dinner table talking to them and I have compassion for them. They're people with good values. And I think it's going to be incredibly critical for us as candidates to make sure that they know that they're welcome and that we're considerate and compassionate of, of their ideas and their perspective, even though they may not agree with us 100% of the time. Were you honing your skills as a progressive or were you downloading a progressive or a, a, a Republican kind of uh, sensibility about the role of the individual and the role of society in public policy. I think I'm a kid from Orange County. <laughs> and like so many kids from Orange County, uh, you know, we grow up in a pretty diverse community. Uh, and you have to understand both sides. And, you know, when, when, being a millennial, as a millennial, you grow up in the most diverse generation ever. And that means that for sure. And, that, and that, that means that you roll up your sleeves and you get things done. You don't label people black, white, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat. You just try and figure out how to get work done. And that's what we need in Congress right now. And that's the type of representative you need here in Orange County. So tomorrow, the Senate's going to vote up or down. We, uh, it, it should come to the floor to restore net neutrality. The House of Representatives will likely not have a similar vote, it, it looks like, at this point. Um, and so where where are you capturing where the status of net neutrality is? Because there's there's a political and there's a legal kind of a component to where we are at this point. Well, and then there's an economic. <laughs> uh, you know, look at net neutrality has been critical for the growth of our innovation internet economy. Something that our district benefits from more than most. And if, <laughs> if we don't have a representative in favor of net neutrality, then she's in favor of uh, the cable companies and the ISPs that, are, that, that stand to profit from this. And, you know, I always believe in the reason why I got into technology initially was because it leveled the playing field, leveled the playing field so that anyone, a kid like me growing up, here could just kind of get out there and build something and all of a sudden with my code I can turn it into a successful company that's why I went down to Nicaragua and I started teaching kids how to um, how to how to access the internet and how to code as well because I thought that was incredible that kids in the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere could help 
me and work together to build one of the biggest phone companies in the country by serving the rural poor. And that's what you get with net neutrality. When you don't have net neutrality, you entrench the monopolies that you were describing earlier. And that's when you get to a situation where people have control over your data, where it makes it really expensive for you to be able to, um, uh, to, to compete as a startup, to offer alternatives. Look at who supports uh, the Consumer Privacy uh, uh, Protection or Act. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the companies that's supporting it. It's an internet company. It's called DuckDuckGo. Who's DuckDuckGo? You ever they're, use it? They're screening all my stuff. Yeah. DuckDuckGo is screening all your stuff? Well, no, no. I have that on my Oh, you on, use DuckDuckGo. My, my desktop. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. DuckDuckGo is amazing. Well, it was a geek it, that it, helped me. It's nothing it I figured that, out on my own. Well, no, but you have you have the foresight to think, hey, I don't want all my search queries well, stored yeah, in- Well, I'm pretty skeptical about and, all this. And, and, and so what happens with net neutrality if, if, if for companies like DuckDuckGo that want to compete against Google or other search engines? So I, I want to wind this down. I give everybody a chance to know where you're going to talk. But what, sure. what I didn't do justice to the, the uh, earlier topic was- whether you think the Europeans have it right, because like, we're still we're, we're really back in tech. Do they have it right with their their own? I'm going to quote the General Data Protection Regulation that they're going to adopt next month. Yeah, I think you know every every. I think this is one is of that the, the model for us. Well, Can I think we well, I think around? I think one of the challenges that we have to consider, and this is what I talk about for as it relates to to all types of policy, is you know uh, po- policy that is implemented into law is a clear demonstration of a country's culture and a country's values. And we have to develop, we have to determine, and I think we've been too slow to determine, we tried doing it at this White House before and we weren't as successful, uh, determine what our values are gonna be as it relates to uh, our data privacy. And we need to hear, and we're gonna hear on the, on the ballot uh, the, you know, this election cycle in California, where our voters uh, stand on this issue. And, you know, I hope that we have the ability to educate them enough. And I think what we saw between Equifax and with Facebook is enough to strike their attention and, 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 and have them start thinking about this because these are critical issues. So, Brian Ford, where can listeners hear and meet you in any upcoming events in the 45th Congressional District as we close? Well, I know we have a house party coming up in Tustin uh, on uh, on Thursday, and then we're going to be- Thursday? This Thursday, okay. and if you That's yeah email 17th. me, you know I'm I'm open, so just shoot me an email, Brian B R I A N at f o r d e dot com. I'll forward you the invitation, uh, or uh, we are going to be at the demo CPAC, which I think is happening next Tuesday, the twenty second uh, of May. There, the you're going to be facing a lot of other candidates. Yep. in the same party. It's only so it's an opportunity for you to meet me as well. Um, otherwise, just shoot me an email and uh, and let's meet up. Well, I want to thank you, Brian Ford, who's come all the way to be in studio, and you have all this campaigning you need to be doing and, and looking under tech hoods right and left. Thanks for coming to the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My guest was Brian Ford. He's a, a Democratic candidate for the California 45th Congressional District. Talk with you next week. Remember, June 5th is primary day. Thank you, everyone for listening.